Hello and welcome to this week's Why Football podcast with me, Michael Dryden and Eches Adokru. Today, I am very pleased to say we are joined by David Seymour. David is a coach at the Claremont Football Academy and Lewes FC Women Under 16s. He's also a senior analyst at Total Football Analysis. David's joined us today as we take a look at his role as a football analyst, how his role has evolved in recent years, and we'll discuss the growing significance of data in the modern game. So, Dave, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Do you know what? I'm going I'm to kill you here by telling you that uh, you did what every away coach does, and you called uh, my girls' team lose when it's Lewis. Oh, um, is that a stickler point? Yeah, they do every <laughs> single time. They go lose. I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's Lewis. And they're like, oh, right. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hello. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're, we're very well. My, my first question was actually going to be, have you managed to work out the expected goals of uh, Lewis FC women's under 16s from <laughs> the start of this season? <laughs> do you know what? We had, we, we had one game where one of the girls just popped one in from about 45 yards out. So... Um, <laughs> probably overperforming. <laughs> <laughs> so to kick things off, um, I thought we'd just go into your background, Dave, to introduce yourself to um, the listeners. So do you mind telling us about your background in football to date and how you began working for, um, well, how you got into your coaching roles and how you started working for Total Football Analysis? Yeah, uh, I was a sort of grassroots coach for... Uh, I guess just shy of about 10 years. And then I was living in the States, uh, got into coaching over there as well. Whilst I was teaching, I was a year five teacher over there. Uh, I was coaching stateside at North Carolina FC. And uh, the a guy that I used to work work for when I was sort of 16, 17, as a coach got in touch and asked me if I wanted to uh, move over to England in a full-time coaching role with Claremont, which is where I coach now. And so that's something that I still do. We get kids from all over the world mm. uh, who come and get an education whilst whilst playing playing football, really. Um, so that's the coaching side of things. And yeah, I've just been ticking along as a coach really for a while now. And uh, and then whilst I was in the States, I think part of me just from a personal development point of view wanted to learn a bit more about the tactical side of the game. So I started reading all these different blogs, all these different books and uh I thought to myself, oh, I could, I could do this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I reached out to Total Football Analysis, started writing for their website. And, um, yeah, things have gone from there, really. I'm still doing it now, uh, I guess, about 18 months, two years. Yeah, maybe two years later. Oh, brilliant. So you touched on the Claremont uh, Football Academy briefly there. Do you want to expand on what they, what they do? So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a private school and they have a football academy attached to it. And we get kids from ages of about eight to 18 from all over the world. And we have teams at every age group. And, um, yeah, you, you name a country and we've probably got a child from that, that country. And they, they come here because they, they want to be professional footballers. And, and uh, our aim is to facilitate that, to, to push them along in, uh, on that journey. And, um, yeah, we, we've, 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 I mean, it's still a relatively young program. I think it's been going for about five, six years now, but been relatively successful um one of our teams just won their second back-to-back national championship which is always nice and um yeah but that i mean obviously that's just one team and and obviously with youth football you're not in it to, to win competitions but anything like that is always always a nice bit of validation so do you think that your coaching 
experience has benefited your analytical role and vice versa yeah definitely definitely i I personally think that the way coaching is going um is that coaches i mean you look at a lot of young coaches that are coming through right now in the professional game and so many of them have a background in uh analysis um one of the sort of the main guys that gets referenced all the time is Rene marriage who's sickeningly young he's about 28 29 and he's the assistant manager at Borussia Mönchengladbach and he came through uh as a essentially a blogger working on the German mm. site Spielva Lagerung and got into coaching with Marco Rose when he was at Salzburg in the youth setup there and just come through from there yeah. but there's there's several other people like like him there's another guy called Adam and Osman Bast uh, I'm gonna say it's wrong Adin Osman Bastik, who is uh, at Atalanta United in uh, America. He's another one. There's loads dotted around. So, yeah, um, it definitely benefits, I think, the coaching. It, it changes the way you sort of look at certain things, I think. And then vice versa, I think that it's important to not just look at the game as a tactical sort of, I mean, when you go to coach, if you're coaching 16-year-olds, you don't want to turn it into some sort of, um, tactical thing like the whole time it's you, you've got to remember you're coaching kids you're nurturing uh, young people so it's important to have the balance for sure so Dave I'm finally on this, on this section do you where do you see yourself do you see yourself as a coach going forwards or as a football analyst going forwards yeah yeah as a coach I think when I started doing the analysis stuff it was like I said just to sort of learn more about the game um, started reading some different writers Lee Scott is one of them who I'm lucky enough to work with on a daily basis reading sort of everything these guys were writing watching as as many games as possible and trying to look at it from sort of an analytical perspective um just to yeah improve understanding of the game and hopefully improve my coaching thanks for coming on dave um i kind of wanted to touch more on like the actual data within the game currently so the kind of the first question i wanted to have was uh, you know you always hear the term you know data move so quickly and football's always evolving no day is the same as the previous one so kind of how has the analytics and football changed quite recently in the past maybe two three years that's a really good good question i think yeah i mean analytics is moving forward all the time there's different metrics that come up and i think you're just seeing potentially things get more specific i think people are becoming more and more aware of the need for context with data as well um I think, I mean, in years gone by, it was pretty simple data in terms of people looking at things like pass completion, tackles made, and yeah, I mean, those, those things now aren't are now seen as not really entirely relevant. And things a look more specifically. I think as well that people would look at if you're analysing a team and looking at sort of what they do well. You, you're going to look at their philosophy as a team first, and then work out. You know, if they're putting a lot of crosses in, where are those? It's not just cross completion. Where are the crosses? What cross locations uh, are they coming from? Are they going into all those sorts of things? So it's becoming a bit more specific, I would say. I think as well, you've noticed that a lot of uh, the TV networks now are starting to use little metrics, even expected goals, things like that. I know Football Manager is going to introduce expected goals as well. Inside scoop. That's a big reveal. Oh. Yes, yeah, it's a huge yeah, review. You guys need Heard to here first. Uh, start following uh, Miles Jacobson on Twitter. I'm sure he put it up there. I've seen it on Twitter somewhere. Um, yeah, okay. it's, yeah it's it, that's, that's a new thing. 
uh, for the FM21 for all you FM fans. Yeah, that would be, be straight into my WhatsApp group <laughs> after this. Um, so, so thank you, thank you for that. Uh, you, you touched on um, the how you you know if you said about a team if they cross loads you, you wouldn't necessarily look across completion. I remember looking at your piece on Atalanta and how they play. To kind of think when when a lot of people read this piece of data uh, analysis when you're not actually involved in it, how would you actually do it? Would you just watch the team, work out what they're doing well, as you rightly said, or would you look at the underlying data first and then watch them for certain things that they do? Yeah, that's a good good question. Again, I mean, I, there's probably no right way of doing it. I think um, mm-hmm. I would normally personally just go straight in and start watching the games, get a feel for how the team plays, notice sort of any sort of little nuances that wouldn't be measurable in data. Um and then potentially, yeah, look at the data. But at the same time, you could look at the data and go, oh, this team does, you know, they've got a high pass per defensive action. You can expect to see an intense pressing system. So when you're watching them, you're going you're gonna to focus in on what they're doing with how they press, for example. So it, there's no real sort of right way, I would say. It kind of just comes down to personal preference. So do you, so say you find, for example, a pattern of play in a game that you're analyzing um, by a team, by a particular player, would you then look and try and find perhaps the, those 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 metrics or particular piece of data that then evidence what you've done? And if so, do you ever get the situation where you think you've picked out something that is actually fundamentally important in the game and is how someone plays? You look for some data to back it up and nope, it's not there. Yeah, it, yeah, 100%. I've had that so many times where you think, oh, that's interesting that that's happening. And then you sort of look at, maybe you look at more data than just, one game so you look at something over a whole season which is important to do not just to look at you know isolated data mm. and you realize that it's not really a pattern or you might you might see a, a, a really interesting passing pattern in one game and maybe you've seen it two or three times you think oh i'll have a look for that in some of their other games and it's not there so potentially it was just a one-off or even just happened to happen it wasn't like a planned thing um yeah i think i think it's it's, it's difficult one again like there's, I think with so if we focus on Atalanta for example, you would look at sort of who their key players are, and you wouldn't really need to do too much data analysis to look at that. You could probably just sort of read any article on Atalanta and and see Papa Gomez and Osipilicic have all been sort of mentioned, Duvan Zapata, and so you, then you just focus in on those players when you're watching them. Uh, you definitely have a look at their statistics, and I mean there's there's lots of like tools on the internet that make your work a lot easier for yourself so why scout you can compare if you go on to why scout you can compare those players against anyone else in the same position from that league or from mm. if it was if i want to look at all the players from europe's top five leagues against papu gomez all the number 10s i could do that as well so um there's lots of tools that make me look a, a bit smarter than i am but i'm i'm not <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned uh, earlier about how, you know, mainstream sports media like Sky, BT, whatever, you know, bring through quite a few metrics these days. Uh, and one uh, which fans like to obsess over is running. So often you'll get stuff like, uh, I remember when Emery first came in for Arsenal, there's a big thing because Arsenal started running loads and pundits were like, yeah, because they're running more now and because they're having more sprints, they're now a better team. And I've always kind of, I think, I think aside like Wolves, I'm not too sure if I saw recently, are, are not as high on running statistics compared to some other teams. Yeah, obviously they're a very strong outfit. Um, so do you think that 
running in a sense or that type of metric is kind of dated or it doesn't really tell the full yeah picture. i mean it to- like if you're measuring teams against other teams then it's yeah it's not overly relevant because it depends on what their like playing philosophy is if if they're a team that are going to press high and just press maybe then they're going to have a lot you know maybe they don't have much possession so when they win that bet the ball they're quite direct then you're going to see that their running statistics are going to be like super high um, if they're a team that have loads of possession, maybe they dominate possession. They're not going to have a lot of running, I guess. Like, if, yeah, if you were looking at that metric, um, yeah, I mean, I w- yeah, I think I think you've got to look at how a team how a team plays, and then decide sort of what metrics are important. And and then at the same time, this is sort of a little bit off topic, but we talk about comparing teams. I think you're now starting to see with statistics particularly defensive statistics, they're starting to use pass-adjusted defensive statistics. So I'm not a big fan of tackles as a measurement anyway, but let's just say interceptions. Um, a team that dominates possession isn't going to have many interceptions because they spend more time on the ball compared to a team that spends less time on the ball. So rather than say, oh, this this player is making way more interceptions than this player, you you would adjust them to sort of the amount of like possession that a team has to, to more evenly weight it. Mm. I think you might start seeing that in a lot more statistics going forward as well. But that seems like a sensible way to do it. No, that's that's, that's pretty interesting actually because I know like fans. Just, I think James Rodriguez on his debut didn't sprint or he had zero sprints. And I remember on Twitter it was like this thing where like oh. <laughs> Like people were like, "Oh, he's too good, so he doesn't need to run." And other people were like, "He's too lazy." It sounds like such a like British thing to get annoyed about someone not sprinting on a football pitch. Uh, <laughs> it's very reactive. If he scores four goals, he doesn't sprint. He's too good to sprint. If he does absolutely nothing, then he's lazy. I mean, the obviously Ozil is always the guy that people love. But you get both camps. People love saying that he doesn't work hard, doesn't track back, and certain you know into certain systems. And then you'll get someone on Twitter who'll find his like kilometers run since like 2008. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be like, like, like best in all that Europe's top five leagues for his position. And then do you know what? There's like uh, the the guys. Uh, I'm probably going to get loads of like hate messages on Twitter now because it's probably like half the people that follow me. But um, you get these people on on Twitter that will like, and and this this is uh, all joking aside. This is important not to do this. They'll they'll bring up stats from a player in one game. And in isolation, and so it'll be like I don't know Declan Rice, and it'll be like th- today against Arsenal, three tackles, and then they'll put like a fire emoji after it. <laughs> yeah, eighty percent pass completion, and you're like that doesn't doesn't mean anything. It's always by some guy who's got like a picture of like Pirlo as his uh, profile picture. <laughs> 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 you know, you're not wrong there. Normally, a picture of Pirlo in the Union Jack in his um, his uh, bio name as well. Um, that's a that's a deadly combo. That is. Um, uh, moving moving on from that one, uh, another question I had as well. Um, I remember I watched a Tifa vid a few years ago about uh, Thomas Muller and how he. It's quite hard to pinpoint um, what he does specifically well because they coined that term space invader. And the question I kind of wanted to have on that is, do you think a good player can have bad underlying data or metrics? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah, it depends. I mean, at the same time, like in some areas, Thomas Muller wouldn't stand out. 
But then in others, he would. I can't remember how many assists he got last year, but it was mad. He's also ageless. Isn't he like 30 years old or 31? It's a joke, isn't it? So he's been around forever. Hmm. 31, mad. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, that's a really good question. Potentially, I think more so, yeah, with when you look at center forwards, for example, and yeah, if you were looking at center forwards, maybe a lack of goals straight away, you're going to like a lot of people just go, ah, yeah, not really up to much. Uh, it's important to then, if you look at like expected goals. So I think a really good example recently has been Che. I think Che Adams is top, top of my head, who started scoring recently. And when he first joined Southampton, he wasn't scoring at all. But I believe he underperformed his expected goals a fair bit. And so it was like, if you believe in in that metric, it should average itself out. And so at some point he's going to start scoring. And Southampton were patient with him, and he started scoring. So. Yeah, potentially. I think as well, like one of my favorite players in the Bundesliga is a, a player called Yannick Harbra, who plays for Freiburg. And he has no standout statistics mm. really whatsoever. Um, but when you watch him play, he just facilitates space for other players so well. He's a really intelligent mover off the ball. And that's something that, again, that when you look at statistics, you can't really measure. Um, but that's that's uh, something I guess for mm. as a coach I quite like players like that and he stands out for me but I mean he, you know he's he's a key player for Freiburg well he, he certainly was at least last year and yeah that's that's someone who wouldn't show up statistically I mean as you know we had um, an episode with your colleague Lee Scott where we talked about Liverpool and I suppose an example there would be perhaps Bobby Firmino who mm. you know in terms of scoring assist statistics probably is not going to be up there um, or hasn't been up there in a the past couple of seasons but as everyone knows he's fundamental to the way in which they play and Lee actually we talked about Bobby Firmino and we talked about who is the kind of like for like replacement and he actually he's his actual opinion on that was statistically prior to joining West Ham Sebastian Haller was the closest he'd seen um, or from an analytical point of view or standpoint to Bobby Firmino which I thought was really interesting and it probably um, feeds into that kind of argument that some people do really actually fit a certain system and are so fundamental to a system that it might not be the statistics that actually show their class and their quality through all their importance. Really good point. I think for me, it's uh, a, better, a better example than bloody Yannick Harbour. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, I remember him talking about Sebastian Adler and I was really excited about him joining West Ham and uh, he's not really lived up to that building. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's a sour note from your end because he hasn't played too much, has he? But um, yeah, yeah, no, he hasn't, and I think West Ham's system hasn't hasn't really helped things uh, at all there. It's a, it's interesting. You actually, touched on the whole expected goals thing with Che Adams because we on that on that league call we discussed Patrick Bamford's, who I think just before the season started there was this big metric that went out about how many big chances he'd missed. And how, you know, Leeds won't have as many chances. So in theory, what will happen is he just won't score at all. Uh, and then there are a lot of fantasy players out there who are then wagging their fingers at me and anyone that listened in because he's done quite well and has actually outperformed his expected goals. So it is quite interesting to see how streaky goal scoring can be, almost in a way that you can look at the underlying data of someone and think, yeah, they'll do this and they should do. But then the guy just hits a purple patch or very good form, or maybe it has changed. I saw that about Bamford as well, and yeah, I mean, there's also players. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily just come down to goal scorers too. I think I remember last season, the beginning of last season. I think West Ham were doing relatively well at the beginning, and we had Lucas Fabianski 
in goal. And I was looking at our stats and we were way outperforming our expected goals against. And he got injured. And it, I mean, it didn't help that we had Roberto Jimenez come in, who might, might be the worst <laughs> goalkeeper possibly in Premier League history. Um, but nevertheless, as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, we're going to really struggle now. And, and we did. So, yeah, it's not necessarily even just, I mean, those are, t- the, the thing is that goals, that goals are so easily measurable compared to, you know, other things. So when you look at strikers and goalkeepers, those two are quite easy to look at. And uh, it becomes a little bit more uh, nuanced when you look at sort of different different positions, a bit you know midfield or defence. No, oh, yeah, that, that's um, yeah, that, that's a that's a pretty good point actually. And kind of the last question I kind of had before Dryan takes over again is I remember we discussed before um, this whole thing on uh, potential um, and kind of when I think CIES, I think they've got their name right. They released that thing about how valuable the most valuable players in the world. And kind of the, the question I kind of had was when you get really young players, how would you, do you know how at all you'd actually analyze their potential? So when you get, um, I don't know, I can't think of it, Jaden Sancho, right? And he's 17. How would you actually project how could he, how good he could actually be? Would it be more of a coach's eye saying, you know, he's as good as X and you'd look at some data that would say why, or is it purely driven from, oh, at 17, Messi was doing this. Therefore, Sancho will also be as good for example i think i think it's it's a bit of both and i think that you have to be careful uh i think i have i've heard from a very good source a story of a academy director who wasn't very hot on one player was very hot on another player and the one he wasn't really a big fan of at all is now playing for england and then the other one uh isn't playing in the premier league anymore um so I think that like when it comes down to coaches' opinion, I mean, football is a game of opinions and I think that people are going to like someone, not like someone, and it becomes entirely subjective. Uh, so I think that top clubs are now trying to get a balanced opinion. They're still going to respect the coach and people who are in, like, that's an isolated incident and this di- director of academies is, is probably knows more about football than you know I'll ever know. And same with most people. And you've got these academy coaches there, outstanding coaches, They've they've seen so much. They know the game inside and out. But you know you can never have sort of a, enough help when when it comes to nurturing players. And I know that Arsenal, for example, uh, have a system in place which shows players from their academy uh, at certain ages. So I think, for example, let's just take Jack Wilshere as an example. They they would have Jack Wilshere's statistics when he was maybe seventeen, and they would be looking at other players of the same age who have similar statistics. And from there, they can kind of guess, or the, the idea is that they can kind of guess mm. where those players are going to, are going to go, are going to end up. Um, and uh, the issue with that the, is that obviously, as we've spoken about, data is changing. So potentially some of the metrics they use won't be the same. But nevertheless, it gives an idea where, you know, now they've got, let's say, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, they would have had his data since he was probably... 12 years old, for example, and they can be looking at other academy players in the same mold as Maitland-Niles and working out where those players can be. So it's a really good idea to have a sort of an extra thing. I don't think you're ever going to see these clubs base entire opinions off of data. I think they're still more likely to side with the, the coach's opinion, but you know, coaches get it wrong. And there's so many stories of, of a coach not liking a certain player and that player going on to being you know, something special. Yeah, and kind of, well, kind of um, 
building on from the idea of kind of data or statistics or analytics versus the coach's eye or the scout's eye? Maybe quite a maybe quite a wide question here, but do you think there's an obsession with data now in the modern game, or do you mm. think it's at um, a good level? Yeah, <laughs> I'm upset upset a lot of people. Be careful my answer here. Uh, <laughs> I think I think it can go either way. I think there are some people that have no time for it, and I think there are some people that are it's everything to them. And you see an argument all the time of you know which one. If you had to choose one, which one would it be? And I don't think you can. I think they're both. It's really useful to have the eye the eye test and also the data test. Data data is a really good indicator of things, but uh, for yep. me personally, that's that's kind of that's its role. It's an indicator, and that you've got to be able to have someone who can either apply the data or who can see things in the game. And it's not like you have some. There's not. I mean, I don't believe that there are people that can just see things in the game and they've got some magic skill to look at what's happening in the game. I mean, you just you get better the more the more you watch things. And um, yeah, I think I think together they're 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 a good tool. But I, I wouldn't focus on one or the other but yeah i think i think uh with data there's i mean it's just i think possibly imperfect in the way it's used i think some people for example you still seen people use single game expect a goal data which is pretty useless um the expected goals is something that's really important to look at over a longer period and it should give you a good picture of where either a player is performing in front of goal uh, over a season or where a team should be in the league, for example. But over a game, there's too many variables. Um, there's there's some flaws in, in expected goals, for example, where you, you could be there could be one move where there was five shots and a goal must scramble. And each one of those is assigned technically an expected goals value. They could be two yards out. Yeah. And suddenly you've got mm-hmm. one and a half expected goals maybe from five or six shots in a goal mouth scramble. And that doesn't give a fair indication because the goal that went in wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the four shots beforehand. I mean, there's, there's lots of things about uh, single game expected goals. So I think, I think people are still learning it. Uh, there are much more intelligent people than me when it comes to data who know way more than me. So I'm still very much learning it as well. And uh, I don't think yeah. necessarily is an obsession, but I think, yeah, I think people need to sort of, take everything with a pinch of salt. Yeah, I remember listening to your on Total Football Analysis, your episode with Matthew Pearson at Wolves, uh, I believe it's a data analyst there. And, and one of the questions you asked him, I recall was when he's interacting with the coaches there at Wolves or with Nuno or somewhere like that, or in his experience of interacting with coaches, you, there, there are some coaches that actually are very stubborn to taking on these, some of these match reports or data um, analyses into, and actually incorporate it into their work, whereas others are absolutely on board with it and I suppose it depends on the style of the coach it's one thing I've always wondered as well so we're in an age now where everything a player does on the pitch is analysed to the 10th or 11th degree mm. but I wonder do you think players actually take notice of and they they obviously have them those kind of statistical tracking kind of vests on I don't know what else to call it when they play and when they train do you think players take notice of these like metrics I think I think some do and I think potentially the ones that would do are the ones that maybe don't feel they're performing as well as they should be and so looking and for reasons why that might be i think if things are going well you don't if i was on a goal scoring streak i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to look at my expected goals for example and realize that <laughs> uh you know i've been underperforming but then for example it che adams who scored two in the last two might have looked at his expected goals from the 
previous four Premier League games and been like, oh, I should have scored two or three by now and I haven't. So they're coming. Mm. So yeah, on the flip side, I think some players definitely would be. Um, I think you'd be looking for a tactical advantage too. There are definitely players that will go to the the analysts and say, right, what is this centre forward that I'm playing against going to be doing against me? So it's not necessarily just data. It would be looking at the footage and saying, this is what they like to do. These are their tendencies. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I think some definitely do. Um, But again, yeah, you're spot on. I think some people just aren't going to buy into it and that might not change, but it is what it is, isn't it? Yeah, so we kind of touched on, you know, whether there's too much there's an obsession with data in a modern game and the data that we currently use and how good it can be and what it does, but kind of like looking into the future, um, because football is, as we've mentioned before, is changing all the time. Um, what, what, what do you reckon the future of, uh, the data in football will look like? I mean, we spoke before about packing, uh, and what, as soon as you mentioned packing, I think I put it into about four different group chats as if, um, I created it myself, but, um, it's it's more it, it was really fascinating when you when you spoke about it could you give a bit more uh, of an in-depth scope on what it actually is and how it's currently changing the game now yeah so i mean passing statistics aren't aren't perfect they're still very broad and you know it's even going from looking at pass completion to forward pass completion which is is you know is helpful but it's still not great um, and then you're looking at, you know, maybe passes to the final third, passes that go into the penalty area, progressive passes, things like this. And they're they're better than just looking at how many passes someone's made and how many times they completed. But again, still not really perfect. Packing is a metric which values, I could be wrong here, I'm going to try and get this right, values the, uh, also looks at the value of a pass and it measures this by, seeing how many players that pass has taken out. So it's looking at these line-breaking passes that are so valuable. Um, and yeah, and you can see sort of which players are consistently paying passes that are taking players out of the game. You could play a pass forwards, but if the, the area of that pitch is not particularly built up, then the value of that pass is actually less than if, you, if you're David Silva, but you play for City and you're playing a pass through, or De- Devin, Kevin De Bruyne now, and you're playing a pass through three, four men, it's a high risk pass because obviously if they're within a compact area, then obviously they can intercept the ball, create a counter attack. And so the value of that getting through in the end is seemingly so that's much higher. It. Yeah, that's right. And so you can sort of put more of a value on that, on that uh, pass. The, there's one that I don't really understand that's come out of the States and I'll get this really wrong, but it assigns a sort of expected goal value to every pass, but like a, like a minute value to every pass. Um, and so you could build up an, a more realistic expected goal value over the course of a game. I probably butchered that explanation. I saw a video on it and it was far too intelligent for me to understand. But um, I know that that's got a lot, of, a lot of buzz at the moment as well. I think kind of the theme from what you just said there is that there is just so much happening all the time. And everyone, because a lot of these things like packing, for example, I think came from a German and little company. Um, and I think it's almost like we're, each of these vendors and each of these kind of um, producers of this type of kind of statistic are trying to vise being that kind of <laughs> that fundamental statistic that everyone's going to start using again, almost like expected goals. And so they can then sell their wares and their data and these, this like this new metric that will obviously make their money, but then will also transform the game. Like perhaps it might, yeah. um, not that expected goals is transformed. Well, I think the thing is as well is that it's, yeah, it's these, these companies which are bringing in these sort of like smaller edges are trying to sell them, I guess, exclusively to to clubs. 
sell their technology to exclusively to clubs so that other clubs don't have it because the issue with data analysis is that everyone's doing it now. So, I mean, you go on and you're maybe you're looking for players, looking for hidden gems, and you may, you might find this this player who's playing in, I don't know, Egypt or something that you've never heard of. He's playing in Egypt's second division. You're like, oh, wow, this, this, is gonna, this guy's going to be amazing. And then you realize that he's playing for like <laughs> one of, one of the many clubs that feeds into the Red Bull organization, which happens all the time. Um, and there's just this, but then there's so many clubs doing it with data now. Um, and that, if, if anything, I, I kind of admire the clubs that I'm not saying they don't do any work with data, but maybe don't take that approach as much and are just trying to find undervalued players that maybe fit their system well. I think Burnley have done really well uh, up until this, this point of sort of bringing in players on not a massive budget that maybe other people aren't that interested in players that aren't particularly statistical outliers. Um, and so all the people that are buying into this sort of more money ball approach aren't looking at, but they seem to fit their system well. And I mean, that's more of an old school way of doing it. So it's, it's how you can, any, any way of finding any edge, but the issue is, yeah, with data, so many people are doing it that now it's so hard to find that, that edge in that field. And one um, kind of, Final question I have for you, Dave, is you're a Hammers fan, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, okay, fine. And the question I had for you is, Benarama, uh, where is he finishing this season? Is he, is he going to be a hit, a big success, or is he going to be down in the gutter, do you think? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm still waiting to see where he... I mean, I thought that both for now was going to be a massive hit, and they continued to use him on the wing. So I think with Benarama coming in, for now will play centrally um i'm i'm pretty hopeful with with ben rama he 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 was a like a a big a big performer last year in the championship like performed really well but i mean statistically performed exactly as he should have done so i think he'll come in and i think i think he'll do well uh, i don't think he's i mean i could I, i'd love to be wrong but i'm not expecting him to set the world on fire um i think he's going to be a really solid performer for uh, what is a pretty poor lower mid-table Premier League team. Um, yeah, but then, I mean, you look at things that aren't measurable in data. He's not the best, like, tracker. He's not going to track back um, massively. But then we had Felipe Anderson before that, and we had Dimitri Payet before that, and those guys didn't either. So he's 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 probably kind of similar to what we already had. I just think they wanted to get Felipe Anderson out of the club. So... They they loaned him out and try to find uh, a replacement. I think I think I think Ben Rama will be as good, if not better, than Felipe Anderson, who was a really sort of underwhelming transfer, wasn't it? You didn't sound too optimistic at all, there, Dave. <laughs> I'm not optimistic. <laughs> West Ham fan. Yeah, I'm not at all. Not at all. Do you know what? Before before all COVID happened, uh, I decided I wasn't going to renew my season ticket and that I was going to choose a, a non-league club to get behind and like put my money into instead. I mean, I still support West Ham, but I was just like, I'm not going to put any more money into that club whilst they run the way they are. And then so my dad and my brother-in-law, we decided, we voted and we went with Halifax. So we were like buzzing for this season. And then, yeah, COVID happened. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to go and watch any football now. So, um, well, actually, I'll tell you what, are you allowed to go and watch Halifax? I don't know. I think if you watched on league at a, at a reduced basis, although that I saw, I saw, I watched the FA Cup draw yesterday, 
Um, and obviously that, there's, there's quite a few non-league teams in there. And the FA has just announced that for the FA Cup first round, there'll be no fans in stadiums because it's obviously a mix of yeah. football league and obviously non-league. So there's, um, I don't know what's like in like, you know, day-to-day non-league football, but uh, yeah, for the first round of the what, FA Cup, there's going to be none, which is a big shame for some of them non-league what, clubs. What are your, what are your thoughts on uh, on COVID era football? I just think it's all a bit rubbish. I don't really enjoy watching games about fans there. No, agreed. There's some games like the 7-2 Villa game with Liverpool, which were, yeah. I think, better. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think the kind of, the ramifications of the games don't seem to be as high. It's almost like you're watching a training game. So you're seeing, I thought we'd see, to be honest, I thought we'd see less of your kind of evidence coming through, even though they spent they spent money. Like your Villa, for example, doing well. I thought we'd just see, you know, the big teams really dominate without kind of having to go away to a hostile crowd or, you know, perhaps play in front of a, you know, some teams don't do that well against in front of their own crowds. Um, i.e. probably West Ham and Sunderland when we were back in the Premier League. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of it, um, but I'm just glad it's, here Edge, are you a fan? That's a very good question. I mean, I think it's really helped us in the Arteta era. I think a lot of the things that Arsenal try to do or are trying to do in terms of possession, building up from the back, has been quite successful. I remember when we tried to do something similar under Emery and it's quite chaotic. It wasn't helped by fans that lost the optimism when like Petacek couldn't control a ball uh, from a pass back. Um, the fans are quite unforgiving then. I think it's been easier for stuff like that. I remember watching the North London derby. Uh, I think we lost 2-1. It was it was pretty dull without the fans. So, so overall, I'm not really a big fan. I think actually, on a side note, Arsenal have started, you can watch a, the games in the stadium, in the restaurant for, for, some, for something ridiculous, like £100. Yeah, so really? there's, there's two. There's one for 50 or £60 and you get a picture with the Community Shield and you get to watch the game on TV. Then you can pay, I think, £200 and you get a picture of the FA Cup and you sit in a different restaurant. Um, so, yeah, there's a club that's trying to do anything at the moment to get some sort of revenue through the turnstiles in. Yeah, poor, poor little Arsenal trying to get some money in through the door. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, that's a really good point well, when you say about fans giving, giving uh, them a chance to, I mean, or, you know, there, there being a lack of fans and therefore, yeah, possibly performing better. That that could be why West Ham aren't doing horrendously as well, because I know that our fan base, as you might have told from from my overall demeanour, aren't the most positive when it comes to um, <laughs> how, we, how we do. So yeah, it's a fair point. I didn't really think of it like that. All right then, well, I think that's a good, good point to wrap up on. Um, Dave, thank you very much for um, coming on for this week's uh, episode. Um, real great insight from you and it was a very enjoyable podcast. So yeah, thank you very much. And um yeah, all the all the best for West Ham season and for your coaching coaching seasons as well with uh, Lewis Town. Hey, good pronunciation. Thanks very much. I appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, cheers, mate. Cheers.